and you should find an outline in your bulletin and there are printed messages at all the exits feel free to grab one now if you'd like or later and all of those are on the church uh, website dating back now 26 years worth both printed and audio that you can access I'm, it's kind of a long chapter, but I think it's important to hear the Word of God. So I'm going to read Exodus 32 this morning. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off their gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, they're an obstinate people. Stiff-necked is literal. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them and I'll make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I've spoken I'll give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides, and they were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of, of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing, I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, Don't let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they're prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us for this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. For every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. Now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out out from your book, which you've written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. And then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Exodus 32, the chapter we just read, is in my opinion one of the scariest chapters in the Bible. It ranks up there with 2 Samuel 11. Every time I read that chapter, I shiver. It's the chapter where David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then schemed to have her husband murdered. And with the gospel accounts of the denials of Peter when he denied the Lord there on the night of Christ's uh, arrest before he was crucified. Exodus 32 is scary because prior to this chapter, Aaron has had some spiritual experiences that far exceed any experience that you or I have ever had or will ever have that we ever could hope to have. He was there with Moses when he spoke and the ten plagues came upon Pharaoh. 
He was there when Pharaoh's armies were coming on Israel and they're boxed in with the Red Sea and God parted the sea and Israel went across and then the sea came back on their enemies. He saw the pillar of cloud and fire that provided heat in the night and protection from that blazing sun in the day for Israel in that barren wilderness. He had eaten daily from the manna that God supernaturally brought. He drank from the water, from the rock in that barren place. And then we didn't cover it, but in chapter 24 of Exodus, Aaron, at God's invitation, had gone up partway on the mountain with Moses and the elders of Israel. And it said they went up to see the God of Israel and to eat and drink in his presence. And then, after all of those amazing experiences, those displays of God's power and his glory, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron quickly yields to the people's request and makes this golden calf for them to worship. And when I read a chapter like this, my first reaction is to say, how in the world could he do such a thing? And then, I read 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers to Exodus 32, along with some other uh, events from Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. And then he applies it to us in verses 11 and 12. He says, now these things happened as examples, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In other words, he's saying, if, if you think, if I think, I, I could never do what Aaron did. Good night, how could he do this? Paul says, think again. You're vulnerable. Any one of us could do exactly the same thing that Aaron did. And so we need to take heed. Now, as I understand this chapter, the sin of making the golden calf was not the sin of apostasy, where Israel just said, we're done with God, we want nothing to do with God, we're walking away from the faith. It wasn't that kind of a sin. Rather, I believe it was what we call syncretism. It was where you take worldly religion and blend it with the worship of the true God and you get kind of a mixture, uh, a, a hybrid that's not true worship. Because what they're doing is they're tweaking the worship of the true God so that it, it's more in line with their liking. Uh, you notice in verse 4, after Aaron makes the calf, the people declare, this is your God, O Israel, not a new God. This is the God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so their sin was not total apostasy. It was spiritual compromise. Uh, they wanted to 
make their God look a little more like the gods of the other nations. There were idols down in Egypt where they had just come from. And uh, they didn't like the scary unseen God of Exodus 19, the God that we saw there who, who is on the mountain in fire and smoke and lightning and thunder and earthquake and loud trumpet. That was a frightening kind of God. They didn't want that kind of God. They wanted a more user-friendly God like all the nations had. Uh, and so they came up with this compromised God. And had it not been for Moses' strong leadership, his selfless prayer, and his spiritual discipline, God would have disowned Israel and made a new people started all over again. So there are three things here to bring out, and that is to avoid spiritual compromise. God's people need strong leaders who will not compromise the truth. Strong leaders who pray selflessly, like Moses did, and strong leaders who exercise necessary spiritual discipline. First of all, let's look at Strong leaders who will not compromise the truth. And we're going to look mostly at the negative side of that, at Aaron's weak leadership that allowed Israel to fall into this horrible compromise. We don't know, but I believe that if Aaron had stood firm as Moses did and said, no way, we're not going there, uh, the whole thing might have been avoided. And to correct Aaron's compromise and get Israel back on track, Moses had to take bold action. But there are seven ways here, I think, in this chapter that spiritual compromise can seep in to a congregation of the Lord's people if the leaders are weak. First of all, spiritual compromise happens when you view salvation as a human endeavor rather than as an act of God. You'll notice the people begin in verse 1 in their request to Aaron by attributing their deliverance from Egypt to Moses. Verse 1, they call him the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Back in Exodus 16, the people had grumbled against Moses and against um, Aaron because they lacked food and God there graciously promised to rain uh, bread from heaven on them to provide meat for them and in that context in Exodus 16 6 Moses told the people at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt in other words it's not I it's not Aaron it's not coincidence this is a God thing. God brought you out of the land of Egypt. But now they've quickly forgotten that lesson and they attribute their deliverance to uh, Moses. But it gets worse. As we read in verse 4 a moment ago, they say about the calf, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. In Psalm 106, verses 19 to 22, it describes this travesty in poetic form. It says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. 
And they, thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior. See, it's God who saved them. Who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the lands of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. And that message is throughout the Bible that salvation is not a human thing. It's not the result of a great religious leader like Moses or the Apostle Paul or in modern times a Billy Graham or somebody who preaches the gospel. Uh, They're just instruments. God just works through uh, men who are his leaders. But salvation is a God thing. Salvation requires the mighty resurrection power of God who alone can give life to dead sinners. It's what Paul says in, for example, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, many, many texts I could turn to, but this one says it well. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. And then he explains, by grace you have been saved. To be saved means to be rescued from God's just wrath against our sin. And we were dead, helpless, lifeless there. And God, by his grace, raised us up. Jonah 2.9 says it even more succinctly. Salvation is of God the Lord, or from the Lord. A second way spiritual compromise can happen, it can happen even with leaders who should know better. I mean, you would think that Aaron, the brother of Moses, the man, as I said, who had seen all of these miracles, would have been strong enough to resist this pressure to make the golden calf. But when you turn to the New Testament, you learn that the Apostle Peter. Paul had to confront him. He came up to Antioch, and when the Judaizers showed up, Peter quit eating with the Gentiles in order to please the Judaizers. And Paul says, even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. And so Paul had to confront these two strong men, Peter and Barnabas. And they could compromise the gospel under pressure. And Paul portrays it as that, a compromise of the gospel. And so we all need to be on guard. I believe that's one reason that God calls for the local church to be governed by a plurality of uh, godly men who are called elders. Now, it's not a foolproof system in that sometimes even a plurality of elders can be led astray by perhaps a pastor who is a strong personality who gets into error and they follow him into the ditch. But Paul warns about that uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. He says, be on guard, notice, first of all for yourselves and also for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then notice this part. And from 
among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Or he tells Timothy, again, kind of his right-hand younger uh, associate in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention, first of all, to yourself and to your teaching. So none of us are immune to spiritual compromise, and we always have to be on the alert, be on guard. A third way that spiritual compromise happens is when you become impatient, waiting on the Lord. Moses spent 40 days there on the mountain with the Lord, and the people got tired of waiting, and so they said in verse 1, As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They knew they had watched him go up on the mountain. They saw all the thunder, uh, the, heard the thunder, saw the lightning, felt the mountain quake. Smoke was coming up and lightning and everything. And maybe they thought, the guy probably died up there, you know? Anybody want to go up and check? No, thank you. Uh, I'm not touching that mountain. <laughs> you know, they're all keeping their distance, but they're figuring, well, Moses must have died. So let's get a, a new God, a new leader, a fresh start, you know? And uh, get out of here. So even though they're, they're supplied with the manna every morning, they're not going hungry. They got the water from the rock, so they're not going thirsty. They've got the protective clouds, so they're not dying under the desert heat. They're, they're getting antsy. Hey, let's, let's get this thing on the road. I mean, we've been promised the promised land. We're not going to get there sitting here. Let's move on. Let's make a God for ourselves who will get us out of here. You know, whenever you get in a hurry and you demand a quick fix to a problem that is going to take longer, you expose yourself to spiritual compromise. And believe me, there are plenty of religious spiritual hucksters out there peddling their snake oil. If you try this, boy, it'll solve all your problems. It's kind of like all the weight loss things you see online, you know. Take this pill, man. Here's before and after. See, it works. Yeah, right. We all know weight loss is not such an easy matter. Uh, neither is spiritual growth. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline? Ah, that's hard. That takes time. It also says in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Wait. Wait. Spiritual shortcuts almost invariably lead to spiritual compromise. So be careful. A fourth way spiritual compromise happens is when leaders want to please the people rather than please God. Aaron was, as we've seen, the more dynamic speaker than Moses, and so God appointed Aaron to be Moses' spokesman to the people. But apparently Aaron was a nice man. And you know, our greatest strengths are always our greatest weaknesses. It's nice to be nice, but the problem with nice men is they're nice. 
and they don't want anybody to be upset with them. And so if somebody's upset, ooh, ooh, let's, let's fix it, let's make it right, but they aren't seeking to please the Lord. And sometimes when you please the Lord, people get upset. Because God's truth is not always easy. And so when the people come to Aaron to make this God who will go before him, there's not a word of protest. He just compliantly says, well, okay, yeah, let's do that. Uh, And when he heard them proclaim this idol to be their God who brought them up from Egypt, rather than confronting them, he decides to build an altar in verse 5 there, and he proclaims a feast unto the Lord. And I think maybe he was hoping for a compromise. Oh, well, now we got this idol. What are we going to do? I know. Let's kind of make the idol uh, a symbol of God and we'll have feasts and sacrifices unto the Lord. And so, you know, he tells the people in, in effect, you can have your idol, but tomorrow let's bring your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and we'll have this celebration unto the Lord. You can have it both ways. After all, you know, everyone will be happy. And uh, it didn't work. Rather than helping the people turn back to the Lord, this compromise quickly degenerates into this drunken orgy that included sexual immorality. And the Hebrew words imply, when it says they rose up to play, that it was sexual in nature. If you have an old King James Bible, in fact, down in verse 25, where it says the people were out of control. The King James says the people were naked. So, you know, picture this gross pagan rock concert where there are no restraints. Everybody's taken off their clothes. They're dancing. They're drunk. I I mean, it's an orgy that's out of control, and that's what Moses walked down to see. But when... Spiritual leaders are people-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. Things can degenerate quickly. A fifth way spiritual compromise happens is when you want a safer, user-friendly God who will work for you. This God whom Israel had encountered up on the mountain, he was unseen, and he was, frankly, just downright scary. You know, you can't negotiate with a God like that. Hey, how about if you give us this and we'll give you that? You know, let's work something out. Let's work out a deal, God. You can't do that with that kind of God. Uh, You can't work out better terms on the covenant. You know, well, God, you require this and this. Oh, that's a little harsh. Can we talk about the contract and get it a little more, you know, friendly to the, the natives? You can't do that with that kind of God. You know, you're not in control with a God like the God we saw in Exodus 19. He is God, and you're not God. And the only thing you can do is submit to that kind of a God. R.C. Sproul made a good observation. He said the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. You know, a golden calf is just a safer, more user-friendly God. It 
you can work with a God like that to get what you want. That's what idolatry is. You, you try an idol and you pray to him and offer him sacrifices and hope that he gives you what you want. If he doesn't, hey, no big deal. Set him aside and make another God. Eventually, you might hit on one that works for you. And that's good. You know, this God works for me. And if you think that isn't happening in, in modern America, you don't understand what's going on. You know, conceive of a God however you want him to be, and he'll help you with this problem. That's at the basis of every 12-step group. Come up with your God. If he works, good, good. You know, he'll help you get sober. He'll help you do this. He'll help you do that. And it's a compromise. It's a user-friendly kind of God. It's not the God of smoke and fire and lightning and earthquake on the mountain. May I say this? If there's no wrath with your God, you don't need a Savior. See, saving means God delivers you from his just penalty for your sin, which is eternal wrath. Take away wrath. Hey, who needs Jesus? You know, just work things out, man. Life is good. Wrath requires a Savior. And Jesus came to save sinners from the wrath of God. The sixth way spiritual compromise happens is when you excuse your sin and you don't accept responsibility for it. Verse 4 says how Aaron took the gold earrings from the people, and it says very definitely he fashioned it with a graving tool to make this molten calf. So obviously it was the result of design. And then when Moses angrily confronts him, Aaron lamely replies in verse 24, Well, I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I was going to title this message, Out Came This Calf. (laughs) You know? What a lame excuse. And it's funny, but it's really sad, because he makes it sound like, I just tossed the gold in the fire, and boy, a miracle. Whoa, look at this calf. When in fact, he had designed it. It reminds me of the stupid arguments for evolution. There's no intelligent designer, just out of the slime. Something as incredible as your human body. I mean, have you ever thought about how complex your body is? There are so many systems. I didn't even know that my body had a lymph system until I got this blood clot in my leg. And then the lady explained to me, oh yeah, you got a lymph system and it got impaired by this blood clot. And I went, wow, really? What does that system do? You know, I I didn't know about all that. And your body has sweat glands to cool you when it gets hot and it has, you know, all sorts of intricate systems And it's all one. You can't take away part and expect the system to work. And yet they want you to believe this all just, boiler, a miracle. It happened over billions of years. Isn't that amazing? Yes, it is. It's more than amazing. It is a miracle. Uh, So anyway, that's what Aaron is trying to pull off. But you know, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we've been involved in the blame game. 
Adam blamed Eve, and then he kind of blamed God. You gave her to me, God. If you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be in this mess. Eve blamed the serpent, you know, and, and here Aaron, hey, I, I was just an innocent bystander when out of the oven popped this calf, you know, what could I do? I love this quote from Matthew Henry. He said, sin is a brat that nobody is willing to own. <laughs> nobody wants to be responsible for that brat. We all want to say, well, you know, he's got a mind of his own. It's not me. Spiritual compromise happens when we start making up excuses for our sin. And then the final way here, spiritual compromise happens when you refuse to submit to God's ways. Verse 9, God says to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. It means stiff-necked. So they're like a stubborn animal that refuses to submit to the yoke Uh, They refuse to submit to the Lord and his ways with them. And they think their ways are right and God's ways are wrong. Why did he bring us out into this stupid wilderness? Why is it, you know, this? Why is it that? Better we had it in Egypt. And they're grumbling against God in spite of God's many gracious dealings with them. May I say, you're especially vulnerable to spiritual compromise when you're going through a difficult trial. Because it's so easy in a trial to say, oh, well, if God only did it this way, I don't like this way, this trial stuff, you know. If I were in charge, I would do it my way. No, 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 no. You're compromising. Remember in California, I had a couple, and the wife was in constant back pain. And I was talking to the husband one day about it and offering to pray, and he said... Well, he said, we've been going to this group, and he named a cult. It's one of these science of mind, you know, false cult things. We've been going there, and he said, uh, she feels great now. And I gently warned him and said, well, you know, that group is false. It's a false teaching. And he stiffened up, and he said to me, hey, my wife was in pain. Now she's out of pain. We're going there. And that was it. I never saw them again. See, Compromise. Truth doesn't matter. What matters is I want out of my problem. And I'll do whatever it takes. I'll use this method or that method or this group or that group because I'm first and God's not. To avoid spiritual compromise, you have to submit. God's got me in a wilderness. And it's kind of hard out here, Lord. But you're God. And I'm not God. So Aaron's weak leadership and his aversion to confrontation and conflict allows Israel to jump into idolatry before they've even left the camp at the base of Mount Sinai. To get them back on course, God used Moses' strong leadership, and that strong leadership is seen, first of all, in his prayer. And so the second way we avoid spiritual compromise In addition to strong leadership, God's people need strong leaders who will pray selflessly for God's glory through his people. In verse 10, God tells Moses, Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, 
and I'll make of you a great nation. That is a very interesting verse. You know why? If Moses had obeyed God, he would have disobeyed God. You ever thought about that? If he said, okay, yeah, yeah, Lord, let's do it. He would have been disobeying God. Uh, Instead, that command drove Moses to pray in verse 11. He entreated the Lord is God. And he begs God to change his mind. And in verse 14, we read this astounding verse. The Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And the King James Version is even a little more bold. It says, the Lord repented of the evil which he said that he would do unto his people. And if you're interested, I have an entire sermon on that. Uh, that I preached back in 2002 called The Man Who Caused God to Repent. And uh, the next three points I'm going to share are just brief synopses from that message. And there's a fourth point in the message that I don't have time to touch on this morning. But just suffice it here to say this. God's repentance is what we call an anthropomorphism in the Bible. It's looking at God from a human point of view. To us, it seems like God changed his mind. Like he turned. Of course, all of scripture shows God has fixed his sovereign will long before he created the world. He is, uh, he never changes. But in ways that we cannot understand, here's the, the marvel. He uses our prayers to accomplish his Sovereign will. And I cannot explain that. All I can say is pray. And sometimes it's going to seem like God changed his mind. Whoa. I thought he was going to do this. And I prayed and God's doing this. Now it's all fixed. God is sovereign. He never changes. He's immutable. But to be strong leaders who get compromised people back on track, we need to pray as Moses did here. And I only have time just to hit briefly on three things. First of all, strong leaders pray that God's person will be exalted. Verse 7, the Lord tells Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And then he tells Moses he's going to make of him a great nation. In fact, in Deuteronomy 9.14, he says, I'll even make a mightier and greater nation out of you than out of this people. And you wonder, well, why did God do that? I think it was a test. And Moses' character is on the line. If he agreed to God's plan B, it would have revealed a heart that was focused on self. Hey, that sounds pretty good, God. Yeah, you know, I'd like to be the father of a greater, greater and mightier nation. But Moses, thankfully, passed the test with flying colors. And you notice that in verse 7, God referred to Israel as your people whom you brought up from Egypt. And then when Moses prays in verse 11, he turns it around. O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? They're not my people. They're your people. And I didn't bring them up whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. And then he goes on and he bases his prayer here on God's reputation with the Egyptians. 
If you wipe this people out in the wilderness, God, the Egyptians are going to laugh and, and just ridicule you. And so, in other words, God, your reputation is at stake here. And so Moses is praying that God's person would be exalted through his people. And you know, God's glory should always drive our prayers. Sometimes people come up to me after a service and say, oh, pray for Aunt Susie, you know, she's suffering, she's got this. And my question will be, how should we pray? And they look at me dumbfounded like, well, of course, pray for her healing. Is that going to glorify God more than perhaps her rejoicing in her suffering for Christ's sake? I don't know, but pray for his glory. Same thing if there's a marriage trouble, you know? Yeah, we want the people to be happy. We want happy families, but ultimately, God's reputation is at stake. We want God to be glorified through his people. A second way strong leaders pray is that God's promises will be enacted. In verse 13, Moses reminds God of his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, who is Jacob. Now, we need always to be careful to interpret God's promises in their context and in light of all of Scripture. So don't just pull a promise out and say, this is mine. You have to interpret it properly. And also, with the promises, you need to remember, just because God promised to do something doesn't mean he's going to do it the day after you pray. Uh, Moses didn't live to see the fulfillment of this promise of God giving Israel the land of Canaan. And sometimes you don't live to see the fulfillment of God's promise in your case. But praying the promises of God is a good way to pray. I often pray, Lord, you promised to build your church. It's what you said. I will build my church. All right, we got a problem here, Lord. Uh, this isn't building your church. Would you please build your church in spite of this problem for your name's sake? And so you pray the promises of God back to him. So strong leaders pray that God's person will be exalted, that his promises will be enacted. And thirdly, strong leaders pray that God's people will be established. Moses' prayer in verses 11 to 13 is after God told him what Israel was doing with the golden calf, but he hasn't seen it himself yet. He's still on the mountain. Then, in the interim, he goes down off the mountain. He sees it. He is absolutely appalled at what he sees. And then he goes back up the mountain in verse 30 to see if he can make atonement for their sin. And then he prays. Verse 31 and 32, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they've made a god of gold for themselves, but now, if you will forgive their sin, and I think there was a long pause there, and if not, please, blot me out of your book which you've written. That is an astounding prayer. Like Paul in Romans 9, remember Paul there saying, I, I, I'd be willing to be accursed on behalf of my people, the Jews, if they would come to faith. I cannot honestly tell you that my heart is there. 
I, I don't want to give up my salvation for anybody, thank you. I want to go to heaven. But Paul and Moses had such a heart for these sinning people that they were moved to pray the impossible, God, take my salvation away and save them. Now, if God isn't going to do that, because our salvation is secure. But Moses wanted that badly for God's people to be established. And Jesus instructed us to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so as you pray through the Lord's Prayer, we know that for God's kingdom to come, multitudes of people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation need to repent and come to faith. And we can pray that for his glory. So to avoid spiritual compromise, God's people need strong leaders who won't compromise the truth, strong leaders who pray selflessly for God's glory through his people, and then finally, to avoid spiritual compromise, God's people need strong leaders who exercise necessary spiritual discipline. Uh, it's, the contrast here is amazing. Moses cares so deeply for these people that he's willing to give up his own salvation for them. And yet, yet, he was righteously angry and avenges God's wrath on these sinners. He comes off the mountain. He smashes the Ten Commandments, symbolizing Israel, you have broken God's covenant. Then he takes the golden calf and he grinds it to powder, scatters it on the water and makes them drink it. And that shows them very definitely, this isn't your God who led you out of Egypt. This is a stupid idol that man made and man destroyed. And drinking it means you've got to suffer the consequences for this idolatry that you've fallen into. And then... He confronted Aaron, and he issues this challenge in verse 26. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. There are only two sides. You're either for the Lord, or you're for the devil. And compromise moves you onto Satan's side. To be with the Lord, you've got to be all with the Lord. And uh, the way back from our sin is to say... I'm going to stand with the Lord. You know, I fell into the other side. God, have mercy on me. I want to stand for Jesus. And then in verse 27, Moses charged the Levites who joined him on the Lord's side to go throughout the camp and kill everyone, including close friends and relatives. And I think it's implied who wouldn't repent of the worship of the golden calf. In other words, they're not slaughtering repentant people. It's those who are saying, hey, give us our idol back. The question that came up in my mind, and I couldn't find any commentator who addressed this, is why didn't Moses kill Aaron? He says, kill every man your brother. Why didn't Moses kill Aaron? Well, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 20, it says God wanted to kill Aaron, and Moses interceded for him said, oh God, don't kill Aaron. So Moses prayed. That's one reason God didn't kill Aaron, or Moses didn't kill Aaron. Maybe God knew that Aaron, Moses needed Aaron to keep on the journey, and uh, we don't know. Maybe Aaron repented. 
He later becomes the high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies on the annual Day of Atonement. I think he had to be a repentant man at that point for that to happen. Now, thankfully, we are never required to take this kind of drastic action in church discipline, but we are required to exercise biblical church discipline. And that's a hard thing for some people. They've never seen it in a church. Churches tolerate all sorts of evil, and everybody, well, we don't want to upset them, and they just allow it to fester and infect the church. Thankfully, rarely do we ever have to get to the stage where we have to publicly rebuke someone and remove them from membership. Usually just going to a brother and say, hey man, you know, I hear you're doing this. Uh, can I help you get back on track with the Lord? Works. And you don't have to raise the ante to public discipline. But Paul says if we fail to exercise discipline, it's like leaven that's going to spread in a loaf of bread and God's name will be dishonored, so we have to be faithful there. Moses' death on behalf of Israel could not have atoned for Israel's sin for a very simple reason. Moses had sin of his own. There had to be a high priest, not after the order of the Levites, but after the order of Melchizedek, who had no sin of his own. And God sent that. Deliverer, that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came and he took our sin on himself on the cross in order that we might be righteous in him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is a stunning verse. He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is God's gracious offer to every sinner. If you will put your trust in Jesus, God takes your sin and puts it on Jesus, his righteousness, and clothes you with it. And one day soon you will stand before God in the very righteousness of Christ, all of your sins forgiven. And that is the greatest gift in the whole world. I invite you this morning, if you've never done so, receive that gift. Let's pray. Dear Father, this story of the golden calf is just a reminder of how prone to sin we all are. Thank you that you made a way for sinners to be reconciled to you through the death of your only son, Jesus, on the cross. Thank you that you raised him from the dead, that he has ascended into heaven where he makes intercession for us, that he's coming back soon to receive us to yourself. I ask if any are here without the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, you would open their blind eyes to see their desperate condition, that you would convict them through your spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment, and that you would draw them to Christ even today.